0: In this episode of Boss Files, one-on-one with Melinda Gates. The work that she and her husband have done through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has produced remarkable results in battling diseases like malaria and polio. Now, Melinda is squarely focused on a mission that is no question her most personal, helping empower women and girls in the United States and around the world, and working to close the opportunity gap. I sat down with her in September in New York. When I first sat down with you and Bill in Davos years ago, um, your focus was obviously on eradicating horrible diseases mm-hmm. and uh, on vaccinations. Your mission has always been all lives have equal value. The way that I see this next chapter that you've undertaken is still in that context. All lives have equal value. And we need to start valuing the lives of women and girls equally.
1: Absolutely. Do I have it right? You absolutely have it right. and I think. For too long, the world hasn't valued women and girls, and that's true in many, many countries across the world. And so while we still take this disease approach and vaccination approach, we also are taking a much more holistic look at women and girls' lives and how they're led and what other things we need to do to lift them up. Because at the end of the day, they are the ones that transform
0: societies. You've always been very data-driven. No surprise that the Gates Foundation is data-driven. But you've said that the data on women and girls as it relates to poverty, for example, and many other aspects, is sexist. How is the data sexist?
1: Well, because it's it's two things. One is it's thin, or it doesn't exist in some places, and two, in places it's biased. So let me give you an example of bias. It's, It's unintended bias, but it's there. So some of the best health surveys that we have that are done worldwide, these household surveys, when they go in to ask about income in the household, they talk to the man and woman together. But as soon as he answers that he has income, they never ask the secondary question to ask the woman, does she have income and where does it come from? And quite often, all over the world, women do have income. And so we need to understand their sources of income, how they use it. Um, but that's just one example of where the data is biased, and we need to unbias that, but we also need to look at where the data is very thin, or We have no data on women, because we can't make investments on behalf of women if we don't know where and how to act.
0: So when you turn 50 years old, mm-hmm. and I'm allowed to say that because you Absolutely. were very public with this. When you turned 50 years old, just a few years ago, you took it as a moment to think about what do I want to accomplish with the rest of my life? and you landed on women and girls. You are a mother of three, two teenage girls. How personal of a decision was that for you? What, what was it about?
1: It was about how do I want to change the world? How do I want to leave things when I'm gone? And if you really believe, as I do, that women and girls transform societies, I have to do this work. I want to do this work. And I think when I first got into global health, First of all, we didn't even hardly talk about women. We certainly didn't talk about girls and global health. But secondly, it was kind of also for me like, oh, that's the soft issue. And what I've come to learn through doing this work is, no, it's the hardcore issue. It's the thing we have to solve if you want to increase the GDP around the world, if you want to transform society. So
0: why make the case, right? Because I was stunned to learn that um, there are more women living in poverty than men around the world. And by the way, that's true in the United States. Yeah. And so that's why we actually say poverty
1: is sexist. There are absolutely more women in vulnerable situations. Even the refugee crisis today, 75% of those affected are actually women and children. And so we need to look at all of these issues and figure out how do we invest in women? Because here's a perfect example. If a woman's educated, her child is twice as likely to make it to his or her fifth birthday. To live. To live. So we have to educate women because what we know is if you educate a woman she makes different decisions for her family, the whole way she accesses the health system, the whole way she thinks about investments on behalf of her children. Women are very naturally family focused Mm -hmm. and when I meet both men and women in the developing world they'll say, I'm all about educating my kids because if I do that they're going to lift themselves out of poverty, but if we don't make the right investments for women She's in charge of the household budget. She decides who eats what, who gets to go to school. If we don't invest in her, then she can't lift everybody else up, and yet she wants to.
0: So what has this journey over the past few years been like for you as a mother, not as the Melinda Gates that the world knows, but as a mother in your household? What have your girls said to you about it?
1: Well, it's interesting. Uh, My oldest daughter, who's now 20, I think when I was younger... She didn't understand why I worked, because she said, but you don't have to, mom. And I said, yes, but there are things I believe in, and there are things that I want to step out and use my voice in and make sure the foundation does. And it's really interesting, as she's older, she says, I completely get it now. I get why you work. And, and she says, I want to be a working mom one day. Absolutely, a mom and a working mom. And I think the other thing, though, about having both girls and a son in the house is you think deeply about your values because you're constantly thinking what do I teach them and then how do I walk the talk it's not just telling them to use their voices it's me learning to use my voice on behalf of others because I want to make society for better for them and their future children my hopefully grandchildren one day
0: so to that point um, one of the biggest issues that society in the world is trying to tackle when it comes to true frankly true equality for women is is the unpaid work that we do as women, the so-called, as economists say, the second shift, or time poverty, Mm -hmm. Um, coming home from our jobs Mm -hmm. and having way more work at home than men do. What is the gap?
1: So, worldwide, if you look at the gap, it's different in different countries. But in the United States, it's 90 minutes a day more that women do of unpaid work. Some of that's work they want to do. Some of it's what's just kind of expected of them, household chores. In a place like Uganda, it's about a three-hour gap. In a place like India, it's a five-hour gap. Women do six hours of unpaid work compared to one hour for a man a day. And what that is is it's a hidden, it's one of those root cause inequities that if we don't talk about it, we don't recognize it and bring it to the light of the day, it keeps women from getting an education, it keeps them from participating in politics, it keeps them out of the paid workforce that they might want to go into. And so. I actually used our annual letter this year that Bill and I do every year to talk about this issue and to start to bring it to light and see what can we do to reduce that and also redistribute the workload. So what
0: is it that things in the women in the United States, for example, are doing?
1: They are often in charge of making sure the homework gets done and the lunchbox gets filled and more driving to school, often caring for elderly parents. And yet elderly parents, actually, men and women have elderly parents, right? And so we need to make it more okay for men to actually take time off work. I've become a big proponent of paid family leave yeah, in the United paid States. paid family
0: leave. Family, not Not just not paid maternal. maternity
1: leave. No. It has to be men and women taking the time off, both to care for elderly parents, because they both have elderly parents usually, not just her. And for a child, we know the child's outcomes are better if both parents take time off. And we also know the dad is more likely to be involved long term if he's taken some time off at the beginning. So we have to make it okay for men and women
0: to take that time off. Two things on that point. You've said that you, Melinda, have been complicit in this in your own life. Mm. Definitely. How? Well, you you realize
1: that you have these kind of assumptions in your household about who does what, even who does which chores. So for instance, we all, after dinner as a family, um, do dishes, but who has which roles, right? And I started to realize I was expecting my son to take out the garbage, but why wasn't I expecting my daughters to take out the garbage? Or why would I ask my daughters to load the dishwasher and not him? Mm-hmm. So we actually mixed up the family roles, and so different people do different things on different nights. It was just a, a really simple example. Um, the other thing that was interesting to me, I never even realized we would role model this as parents. But when Bill um, was still working at Microsoft as CEO, and our young, our oldest daughter now, but she was only four then, was going to preschool. I was driving her at first, and then he started to drive her some. And all of a sudden, there was a kind of a scuttlebutt in the classroom amongst the moms. And I said, "Well, what's going on?" And they said. We're all going home and telling our husbands, if Bill Gates, the CEO, can drive his kids, so can you. And so we were role modeling for other families. And sure enough, more dads started showing up at school. And it was great.
0: My time with my dad uh, was always when he would drive me to figure skating in the morning. In Minnesota, that's what you do because it's cold sure. almost all the time. You learn how to figure skate pretty young. And he would take me at 5 in the morning. And he was in, uh, uh, he was a litigator. And he was incredibly busy and traveling all around the world. But that was our time. And that's something... And he died when I was younger, and that's something I'll always remember that time. So it's not only good for the moms to to have equal share, but for the kids.
1: And think of what it said to you as a young girl. I have a very busy father with a busy job, but I am important to him, and he's getting up early to be with me. That's a really important message for girls to hear from their dads.
0: You know, it's interesting because the way you've talked about it in your letter is you've also said this isn't a global plot by men to oppress women. Mm. Don't approach it that way.
1: No. No, it's more that we have these assumptions about whose roles, are which roles. And so we need to bring them into the light of day, and then we need to talk about them and say, okay, what can we do to reduce the workload? In the United States, we have dishwashers and microwaves, so people would love to have that in low-income countries, and we need to make sure that happens. Uh, But we also need to redistribute the workloads.
0: You said it's not enough to reduce, because if you just reduce, then they'll figure out other work... Will come up, and if you don't distribute that, you're always going to be stuck with more as a woman. Exactly.
1: Exactly. So you've got to do all three. You've got to recognize, you've got to reduce, and you've got to redistribute. I will say, though, though in, in low-income countries, I mean, you have to also think about the what women are doing. I mean, those women in India, or even many women in Africa, you know, they're chopping and carrying firewood. I mean, women spend, on average, three hours a day chopping and carrying firewood. They're walking
0: hours and hours to get water. To get water,
1: to get clean water. It's usually her job. While breastfeeding the their children. Job. Yeah. So, you know, they really want many of... They need energy, first of all, and then many of the time-saving devices. But they also want to have those conversations in their households. And I've actually seen some very courageous families, just like our own or your own, have those conversations even in Africa. Where the woman will stand up and say, you know, it's not okay that I'm the only one doing this particular part of the work.
0: Have you ever had that conversation with Bill? Absolutely.
1: The conversation about, you know, who's going to do what or... When he left um, Microsoft to start working at the foundation, it freed me up to travel more. But it meant that if I was traveling, I wanted somebody home for dinner more, right? So we constantly, literally every week, we look at our calendar. We look two weeks ahead to see who's home for dinner, either both of us or which one of us. And I've asked him to give up meetings to be home at night, to be home with dinner for the kids. And I think that's really important. And he's willing. It's
0: a constant text uh, back and forth between my husband and I, who's going to make it home by 6 for the nanny. Like, yeah. I mean, It's a constant balance and a constant negotiation. But the fact
1: that it's not expected that you're the woman, No, it's not. Right? You're right.
0: It's not. It's
1: like, who? okay, who can do it this evening? Who can flex, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And we need to recognize that so many women in the United States are working these days, right? And married with kids, or single moms with kids, yeah. and they're juggling a lot.
0: Let's talk about the poverty statistics and what the numbers show us. Why is it that more women are trapped in poverty, even in the United States, than men?
1: Well, in the United States it has to do with a lot of single motherhood. There are many women who are single-headed households and struggling to make ends meet. And I think to get a great education and then to find work, meaningful work, that they can do while juggling a family. So I think we we probably need to have some different policy decisions that focus on women to do the right things. We actually have a a poverty commission that's um, up and running now with the Urban Institute. And the whole idea is to create a public good where we can look at poverty mobility. Like, what's happening in the United States that, that people aren't able to get this mobility out of poverty up and into the middle class? And what is it that we need to do, not just as philanthropists, but private sector, public sector practitioners, to look at that problem and act differently. So we're, we have this commission that started that will come up with recommendations with a body of work that will then be public. And I'm actually looking really forward to the findings
0: on that. You travel the world, mm-hmm. obviously, with the work that you do, especially in the developing world. When, when you go to these countries, many people, you say, don't know you're Melinda Gates. They just know that you're a Western woman in Cantonese mm-hmm. going to work with them and to help them. But one thing that stuck with me is that you've said you have to let your heart break. To really affect change, you have to let Mm. your heart break. Mm. When has your heart broken?
1: Oh, so many times. Um, I guess one of the most recent ones is a reminder is,
0: you know, I had a woman in
1: India who asked me to take her child home with me. And she didn't know who I was, she just knew I was from the US, but she was literally begging me to take her child home. And then she said to me, well, if if you can't take this one, take that one. Because she said, look, look what I have, I have no land, my husband's injured, he was laying in the house, recently injured, she says, we have no means of income, my children would be better off with you. And she didn't even know me, and I thought for a mom to do that, right, it tells you how desperate it is that she would give up a child. And um, that's heartbreaking. That's what poverty looks like
0: around the world, and it's it's heartbreaking. That's the desperation, Mm -hmm. paid leave. You and your team have researched this, studied this, what works best? What has the biggest long-term impact economically for families? So what do these policies need to be when they take shape?
1: They need to be family leave so that you don't gender it so it just becomes, okay, women take it and it's almost a penalty that they've had a child and they go take it and they don't come back to the workforce in the same way. It has to be family leave because both parents often have a, you know sick elderly parent, but also when a child is born, we know the child is better off if both parents take some of this time, and we know the dad will be more involved if they take it. So some of the things we need to do is make sure that it's for both parents, mm-hmm. that it's several months, it's paid, and that we also um, incent the men to take it. It needs to become okay for men to take it. And that means men actually taking it and showing that they take it. So Mark Zuckerberg taking right. two months off. At the time that his daughter was born, it was a fantastic thing. It was great role modeling.
0: It's also Silicon Valley, where that is frankly much more widely accepted than Wall Street, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, do we need to see the heads of the big Wall Street banks doing the same thing? Yeah,
1: I think we absolutely do. And I think one of the things is, I would say Mark Zuckerberg's job is no easier than a head of somebody. On yeah, Wall no, no, I mean, come no, on, no his job question. Is it's just the culture. It's the
0: stressed. culture there, I guess. Yep. That I feel like has been much more accepting. They've led on leave, for example, right? right?
1: And what, one of the reasons they've led on leave initially was because they wanted to make sure they had more women coming back to jobs in their sector. right? We need, we need far more women going into tech jobs. That's another thing I'm very passionate about. Mm-hmm. But I think then they started to realize, oh, no, this isn't just about women, it's, it should be family leave. So I love seeing any industry leave on this. It's great that the tech sector's doing it.
0: Anne Marie Slaughter who's obviously Mm. written a lot about this issue and her most recent book talks about we're never gonna get there she says until society values care as much as they value work Mm. meaning they value the care you give to your aging parent or your new child as much as they value you at the office plugging away. Mm. Um, Is there an economic argument to make to companies that tells them this actually makes sense for you and your bottom line in the end to give more leave?
1: Sure, I mean, we know that if people go and take leave, they're happier and they stay at their company longer. So they're less likely to switch industries. So I think if you know that it's good for your bottom line and that you'll have an employee who's gonna be there long-term, that you've spent all this money training and getting them to be great in your job, then yeah, it helps the bottom line. So I think people will start to look at it that way, but I also think her argument, so we, we both have to make the economic argument. And I think we have to make the generative argument that she makes. And I think there are a whole host of countries that came to this earlier than we did. You see a lot of the countries in Europe who said, look, it, society is about valuing both work and yeah. capitalism, which we believe in, and in valuing family. It has to be both, We are right? at the bottom
0: of the OECD countries, right. at the absolute bottom, right. 38, the worst on the list. Right. And you think of the United States as so advanced, and we are in so many ways, uh, but... A tiny fraction of women are Fortune 500 CEOs, a tiny fraction. We're yet to have a female president, right? Uh, South Korea, Germany, UK has all led us on female leaders. Women still make less for equal work, for the exact same job as men do and more women and girls live in poverty in this country. Um, is that something we're actually not talking about enough in this country, I when think, you put it all together?
1: I think you have to talk about it. We have to show what's actually going on in our country. And part of the reason I've even started to speak on these issues is because I would be in low-income countries and thinking, women aren't this far, they aren't that far if they have this. But then I would have to fly back home, and I'd be asking myself, but how far have we really come? I mean, We've made huge strides, but we've kind of hit a stopping point in some ways, and huh. we need to have more women role models. I mean, until young girls can look up and see you know 36 different phenotypes of CEOs in Fortune 500 companies, you know 36 phenotypes of women in government and women in philanthropy and women as scientists and women as technologists. Until they can look up and see all that role modeling, they're not. We're not going to get parity for men and women in all of these industries, and we need to. I mean, there's just no reason not to. We know. That more diverse teams put out a better product.
0: So, the way that some countries have tackled it is quotas, yeah. right? Women, Germany quotas for women on boards. Is quotas the way to do it?
1: I don't know for sure. Different countries have done different policies. Right. So, some have quotas, some will have a quota for a time. Some will just make sure that more money is channeled to women so that they get into these positions. So I think we need to actually study it and figure out, okay, what are the right things that other countries have done?
0: You say, basically, that we were making all of this progress and then this country, it sounds like, sort of plateaued. Um, Is there a point, Melinda, when you think that happened and, and why?
1: I don't think there's one point where it happened on any one of those things. I think we just got to a certain point and then it kind of stopped. So you get to almost 20% of women in Congress and then some years it falls back and it kind of goes back up. CEOs, we have kind of got up to a certain point and then it falls back. So, you know, you can go industry by industry and
0: say, why did it happen? But I just know we're not far enough. I mean... I just read this morning General Motors board is now equal 5-5, five, five, men and women. But that's rare. Yeah. But that's rare for But you
1: are starting to America. see more I think female CEOs finally and I think they will yeah. start asking for more boards. Um, you know, one of the industries that I'm passionate about making sure we change is the time I was in I'm a computer science major, when I got my degree, thirty eight percent of computer science uh Grads. degrees were given to women. And it got a lot worse. And now we've gone down to seventeen percent. Well, nobody exactly knows, but we think partly the games. When I was a kid the games were more neutral games like Pong or Pac Man, Pac Woman, but they become the industry became very gameified. I mean the video game. The video games became very male oriented and women started to drop out of the industry in droves. And if you wow. think back, law degrees were about at the same place. About thirty eight percent of law degrees used to be given to women, and now they've risen up to 48%, or medical degrees were behind, 28% back in the early 1980s, now they've risen up to 48%. So why is it, you know, you've got some where women are moving ahead and in the sciences, but this, when you think about this decline in computer science to me, when I think about technology and where it's going, every industry needs it, we've got to have more women. Well, that's the problem,
0: too. That's where so many of the good-paying jobs are going. That's where the quote-unquote jobs of the future are. Totally. So if you only have 17 percent, they're not equally equipped to get those jobs. You graduated with a degree in computer science and economics from Duke, and you say it was the last computer science class for most of my female classmates who quickly decided they'd rather major in something else. You you literally saw them falling out of the class.
1: Yeah, after freshman year. I mean, freshman year was in some ways kind of a weed out. You know, they would start in and then there were just very, very few. Every class I went into there were fewer and fewer women. And I think one of the things that is going on in the United States is the universities who are looking at this and trying to solve for this problem. That's one of the lost points at universities. They're making a freshman class that is very welcoming, they're trying to put more professors in and associate professors that are female, some more role models. But they're also starting to understand that if you're a humanities major and you're coming to computer science, you know, you're know you learning something completely new. And so you need to be surrounded by a team. And the problem sets also have to be welcoming. So you've got to kind of get used to the class. And there have to be points at which, yeah, you're going to fail, but you're going to pick yourself up. And so they're looking at how to make that course much more welcoming and have women and men persist in it, but make women really persistent. I think there's some lessons there that we will
0: try and start to spread around the United States. You've called guys in hoodies, quote, a toxic stereotype that has become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, I
1: think I think I got a little misquoted on that. Look, so I, set
0: the record okay, straight. Okay. So
1: look, I I programmed with a lot of guys in hoodies. They were great. I mean, we I enjoyed programming with them. But I don't think you're the that you want that being the only set that's programming. Particularly when you think about where we're going with health applications. where We think about where we're going with artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. I mean, if artificial intelligence, which I think is where we're going, if that's going to be taking care of our older generation, do you want just 25-year-old somethings, you know, making that, doing that program, I think you want some generative thinking in there. And so I think you want to have a diverse set of talent, I think you want to have more women, I think you want to have more Latinos in there, more African-Americans in there. We all should be contributing to that and where the future is going and if we fixing it now is going to be far easier than trying to fix it later.
0: When it comes to AI, since you bring up artificial intelligence, are you on the same page about the potential risks of it as your husband, as Bill Gates, Elon Musk, and Stephen Hawking? I
1: think we need to be very careful with where that's going, and I think there needs to be a lot of thoughtful dialogue about how how we how we pursue forward in that that area. Certainly, mm-hmm. it's discussions Bill and I definitely have a lot on vacation. Um, you know, I mean, we've been talking about AI even since the time I was programming, but it's starting to happen. And even when you see in the background what's going on with these huge data sets and how we can mine them now. You know, We're collecting data on people that I don't think most people even recognize that we're doing. Mm-hmm. And we can make incredible inferences, and machines can make inferences off of that. But you know, we
0: need to have that dialogue, that discourse. When does it get dangerous? When does the machine get out of the control of humans, humanity? Absolutely. Again. Are we close to that? Well, like, you'll, have ta- you'll
1: have to ask the technologists <laughs> how soon they think it's going to come. There are different
0: points of view about how soon. Girls' education in STEM, Mm. Uh, the numbers are sort of appalling when you look at it, even like in middle school and high school for these girls and then it translates higher and higher up to many fewer women get patents, Mm. for example. What needs to change? I mean, look, education is by far the hardest thing you guys have tried to tackle, right? Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Education in the United States. Um, You can almost er eradicate these diseases, but education in the United States What fundamentally needs to change so that we are making sure that girls aren't dropping out of the sciences and math early on?
1: Well, let me say something
0: first about just
1: education writ large in the United States. The most important thing is whether there's an effective teacher at the front of the classroom. I don't care who the classroom of kids are, what age they are, what they look like. If you have an effective teacher at the front of the classroom, he or she can get amazing learning out of those kids, no matter what zip code they come from. So as a foundation, we are deeply involved in making sure that we get effective teachers at the front of every kid's classroom. Kids deserve it. In terms of the STEM fields, one of the things we know that good teaching looks like for girls and for boys is really for girls keeping their self-esteem up. So girls go through a time in middle school where they think differently about themselves. And so in science and math, they often lose their self-esteem. They kind of lean back. And instead of, okay, you get a B minus on a quiz, Big deal. You, you redo the problem set and you get the A. Like We have to keep their self-esteem up and make them know that even when the boys are shouting out the answer and the girls are raising their hand, that the teacher calls on everybody equally. Mm-hmm. So again, there's bias in the system where he or she doesn't even realize that they're doing it. And that will affect a girl's self-esteem. But if you can keep her self-esteem up in middle school, in the STEM fields, mm-hmm. she'll often go on uh, in high school to study those fields.
0: It seems like it might make a whole lot of sense to mandate that children in public schools learn how to code. Mm-hmm. I
1: will don't know we
0: get there. I don't
1: know whether it's mandate or whether it's just fun, or
0: even encourage, or even have it.
1: Absolutely, and New York City Schools is doing that. They're making sure that there's funding for the STEM fields, and that eventually everyone in the public schools will be able to take it. And I think that would be a great thing. Kids learning to code these days—you know—if they learn to do it early, I think you'll get far more of them hooked on it. And I think the other thing is—you know—I have a young daughter who's coding. She's 14. She just sees it as fun, right? I mean, she started coding when she was 12. I don't know what she'll do with it, whether she'll go on in that field or whether she'll use it in some other field. But girls are starting to learn that this is fun. And also when they see role models, they say, okay, it's not just that woman who looks a little geeky to me, but wow, there's a woman who I respect and who looks fantastic and like somebody I'd like to be. That's why they need role models in this to say, hey, I can be like her and I would be cool if I'm coding.
0: You said it all comes down to the teachers and there's a lot of fights about education, about uh, charter schools versus public schools, about, you know, core, um, common core. What do we have to do to make sure the best and the brightest are teachers? Is this about paying them a lot more? What it... What's going
1: to do it? Well, I think it's about respect, making sure there's respect for our teachers, making sure there's a career ladder for our teachers, and also making sure that the schools of education are actually putting out very high-quality teachers, teachers who can actually teach the material that's being that needs to be taught in the classroom, which there are many of them out there. I've seen lots of good teachers, but even teachers who can teach these STEM fields. Some of the hardest... Uh, teachers to recruit are the ones to teach STEM in high school because you have to have deep knowledge if you're going to teach physics or chemistry to a high school teacher to a high school student. So sometimes it does mean paying more and some of the most innovative programs they're pulling people out of industry who are retiring who want to teach and so you need to teach them the craft of teaching but they can often become great teachers.
0: Who do you look up to? Mm,
1: I have heroes, um, particularly in the global health field Um, and many of them are people who do that work on the ground. Um, One of them is Paul Farmer, he uh, works for an organization that he started called Partners in Health. They do deep health work in Haiti, and Rwanda, and Boston. He's definitely one of my heroes. Um, There's another woman named Molly Melching who does deep work in Senegal on a lot of female issues and she's one of my heroes for sure. Do they know that? Um, I think so, probably. We've had enough correspondence and enough Probably time together but yeah absolutely when I see what they're doing they're doing the hard grinded out work and they see humanity as as all common you know as they see humanity that we have this common connection and bond between people you
0: began this venture a few years ago focusing on women and girls saying what do I want to accomplish with the rest of my life Mm -hmm. so as you work over the next decades what will tell you that you've accomplished it
1: if I see women and girls making progress I see Fewer women dying in childbirth. I see more girls getting up and into secondary school around the world and graduating from secondary school, uh, seeing more children survive. I think all of those are signs that, you know, we're on our way and making progress. Thank you so much. Thanks, Poppy.
0: Thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Boss Files. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Poppy Harlow CNN.
1: Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN Flash Talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.